You're listening to the podcast from King's Cross Church in Charleston, South Carolina. We're glad you're here. If you'd like to learn more about our church or want to know how to get involved, visit kingscross.org. We pray that as you listen, you experience the love of God the Father, the grace of our Lord Jesus, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. So as many of you know uh, that Chip Robinson, our lead pastor, is on sabbatical right now, getting some R&R, and while he's away, we have the privilege of hearing every week uh, for this month and a little bit into February, God's Word being delivered by trusted friends, and I'm very pumped about um, Craig Tuck being here with us this morning. Many of you know him. I think Craig was the first person that I met when I was checking out Charleston back in 2007 and seeing if I was going to come here to go on staff with Campus Outreach. And to know Craig is to love Craig. And so I said, I mean, you may be the reason why I decided to come. I don't know. I mean, it was several years ago. But Craig has been a great friend to me. We're on staff together at East Cooper Baptist. For those of you that don't know him, Craig was born and raised in a Christian home in South Florida. But it wasn't until his junior year in high school when he was age 16 that he gave his life to Christ, and he was transformed by the gospel. Craig's been married to Rebecca for 36 years and blessed with four adult children. I don't think, do we have a slide, a picture of the family? Oh, there they are. Okay, four adult children. Uh, those are not the four adult children. Uh, Jordan, actually, where are you, Jordan? You're here somewhere this morning. He uh, calls King's Cross home. Um, he's not up there either, nor his three sisters. We see that these six grandkids are what's most important to Craig right now in his life. <laughs> Sorry, Jordan. Uh, Craig has been in pastoral ministry, uh, started right out of college in 1987, and has been on church staffs in South Florida, Atlanta, Georgia, and Charleston, uh, while planting and replanting churches all along the way. Craig is currently the executive director of the Charleston Baptist Association, where he consults, coaches, organizes, and collaborates while encouraging leaders and strengthening churches and multiplying new churches in greater Charleston. That's a mouthful. I'm telling you, this man does every single one of those things mentioned. I call Craig the godfather of anything kingdom work in Charleston. Uh, to be involved in kingdom work is to know Craig Tuck here. There are three important things you should know about Craig. And here they are. Number one, his college allegiance is to the Clemson Tigers. It's obvious people still need Jesus, even after coming to Christian. Uh, his NFL loyalty is to the Miami Dolphins. He's actually had the opportunity to meet uh, Dan the Man Marino uh, one time in his life, so they call each other friends, I guess. Craig was raised in the home, listen to this, of an entertainer professional clown <laughs> who once was the Ronald McDonald of South Florida. And last but not least, Craig went to Bible college with Larry the Cable Guy. So Craig's personal mission statement is to be a missionary disciple seeking to make Jesus unignorable to every man, woman, and child while serving and fostering kingdom come realities in every domain of society. So I'd like to do what we've done for the last few weeks in praying for Craig and praying for ourselves. 
I'm going to call Paul's twice, and I would like for each one of us just to pray where you are silently uh, for Craig and for yourself. So first, please pray silently for Craig as he prepares to share God's word. And now take a moment and silently pray for yourself, your heart and mind as you prepare to receive God's word. Amen. Please welcome Craig Tuck. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's a real joy uh, for me working with the Charleston Baptist Association now for seven years. 16, when King's Cross started, uh, we decided together to partner in the city together for the sake of the kingdom. And so I appreciate your pastorship. What a blessing and gift he is to you. He's been a blessing and gift to us. He sat at our administrative table when I first came on to help us figure out how do we help strengthen your church, your pastor, you've been at the table. We're kind of that invisible organization in the background, which is what we want to be. But we try to help find ways to strengthen leaders, strengthen churches, and to see more churches get planted and replanted in the region. And as Josh said, I am boastfully proud of that picture you saw of those six grandchildren. In fact, in just three weeks, there are two more that are on the way in our family. So we had no idea that this would be the time of a bumper crop of grandchildren, but there you go. I want to thank you also for those of you that care for Evelyn and Nora in the children's area. They're my precious gifts that are here, and I'm so thankful for them. Rebecca and I both are. And who am I forgetting? Oh, their parents, Jordan and Courtney, too. Thank you for, you know how that goes, right, grandparents? It's like, okay, we're so glad you're here, but thank you for the grandkids. We're here, you know, it's all in. It's a real joy, real joy. Also, disaster relief, Ron Bycroft, who's part of the congregation. We partner together in the association as well. So there's a lot more we have in common uh, I may not be as familiar to you, and that's not important anyways, but really what's important is that the partnership in the gospel is going in and around greater Charleston. 73 churches in the Tri-County area uh, that we're partnering with together for the sake of the kingdom of God. So that's a real joy and a real, real blessing. Um, so I know that we're in a series on a new year and old habits, a new year and old habits. And I like what Pastor Chip set it up to say that a spiritual habit is a biblical practice that promotes spiritual growth in Christians, and that spiritual habits are not the end in themselves, but a means to an end. Um, what I'm going to do mindfully here is set a timer, because I tend to get wrapped up in what I'm speaking on, and I need something to kind of ping me at about 30 minutes to say, okay, Craig, wrap it up. So I'm going to set my timer so that we can be on track. Well, spiritual habits are important because they are tools, right, that help us grow. Uh, they're extremely important. Um, but in themselves are not the ultimate goal. And sometimes I think in life we can get to the point where we're crossing off T's, dotting I's, or checking boxes, right, and saying, thank you, Josh, and saying, um, you know, I I've done what I need to do today. Now I need to go about my day. And I really think the kingdom of God and being a part of a disciple of Jesus is an everyday experience, an every moment experience. And Paul live that way. And so we're going to look in the book of Colossians chapter 4 this morning, look at a few verses there that will look at Paul in the way that he not only exhorted the church to follow him, but also gave an example of what it would look like to be a watchful witness. Today's focus is on that topic of how do you share the gospel? How do you share your, yourself, the gospel through you? Now, when we hear those words, many times there's a fear or an obstacle that goes... 
I'm not sure I know how to do that. It, 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 we kind of get tripped up because of the knowledge issue there. And what I want to do is break that down today to say it is not about what you know or what you don't know. It's more about who you know and who you're following. That's the bottom line, right? You see, I, I, can, I can tell you about my grandkids any day you want to talk about it. <laughs> I can tell you about my wife. I can tell you about the ministry. I can tell you about what I do and where I'm at and, and what I'm about, just like you can, same way. So the question is for us is, how is Jesus, his life, the gospel that rescued you and me, how is that an everyday presence and experience so that I'm living in, breathing in and out of that reality? What is it like today walking with Jesus? That's a witness that you and I have. So Paul lived that way, and he demonstrated it. So the ultimate goal, again, is not checking the box, right? The, the ultimate goal is how is Jesus unignorable in every part of my life? In fact, Sunday, as great as Sunday is, and as significant as it is of gathering together, Think about all the light that's in this room, right? If you know Jesus and you come in here and you're shining the light, we're bringing a lot of light together in this room. The ultimate goal of your week this week is not necessarily just to finish, finish your start here. It really is to let this be a comma in the sentence of how you're living your life out every day, where God has put you, where you live, where you learn, where you work, and where you play. It, no matter where it is, God's called you and called me of what's going to happen tomorrow morning and how do I live this out. So this is kind of like in football terminology, this is kind of like the practice field. We're, we're coming in and we're practicing together. What does it look like to be encouraged and strengthened with being the gospel of Jesus and remembering why it's so important to us, so preaching it to ourselves so that we can begin to walk that out and live that out in every day life. That's how Paul demonstrated it through his own life, and we're going to see that. So there's four specific ways that I believe that Paul showed us how to be a watchful witness, a watchful witness. Witness is simply someone who sees something and observes it and then tells about it. Every one of us can do that. Every one of us does that every day. Hey, this situation happened. Let me tell you what I saw. That's the same reality of what God's called us to be. When we think about sharing the gospel, it's what is God doing in and through us. And what Paul does in this letter is he first sets it up to say, let me tell you why Jesus is unignorable, because he's the creator of all things and he holds all things together, chapter 1 and chapter 2. And then he says, because he is sovereign over all of that, he's also sovereign and Lord over your life personally. In fact, he's made you new. He's given you a new mind and a new heart. So he says, Put your mind on Christ. He says, he says, let Christ dwell in you richly. He even says, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. He's Lord over that. So you're a new person. You have new relationships. You have, you have a, new, a new calling. In fact, you have a new identity. So live that out in your home. Husbands with your wives, wives with your husbands, parents with your children, children with parents, in the workplace in every place, in every domain. Just live that out. He calls us to do that. So we'll look at Colossians 4, verses 2 through 6, and we'll see basically four things on how to be a watchful witness. Chapter 4, verse 2, it says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful, there the word is, with thanksgiving. 
At the same time, pray for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Look what he says here in verse 5. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Verse 6. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. He uses the word pray, speak, declare, answer. So he's using these words to say this is how we functionally operate in our daily life. He first begins with the idea of praying. And he says, pray for open doors. Pray for open doors. Look what he says in verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray for us, that God may open a door for the word. Now, you would think if he's a prisoner, which he is, he's a prisoner at this time, writing a letter to this church that is new and young and trying to battle against different ways of thinking and that are creeping into the gospel. And in this young church, he's writing from a prison cell. Now, you'd think he would be praying, hey, pray that I can get released. In other words, op- the open door is the prison door for me. Pray for that door to open so I can get back out of here. But that's not what he's asking for. He's saying, in my current situation, pray that God would allow this experience or this circumstance to be a way by which I can share why I'm here. You see, that's common to everyday life, isn't it? Lord, I'm in this situation. I'm in these circumstances. Would you give me the opportunity just to say, why, how? And who I'm trusting in in that moment. See, that's, a, that's the indicator of a watchful witness. It's someone who's praying. And as we're praying intently, steadfastly, he says, we pray for open doors. So he gives an exhortation here. And he says prayer really is not about eloquence. It's really about earnestness. You see, when you're in need, and you and I are in need in circumstances it, that draw us to our needs... We're not trying to find the right fancy words to say. We're just crying out to God out of earnestness to say, Lord, help me and and help me in this moment, not only for you to minister to me, but help me for those that are watching my life right now in this circumstance. Good or bad, right? Good or bad. So being a watchful witness is first by praying for open doors. In fact, he gives the example um, that, that, that we need to be ready. In fact, he said this. He said, the word of God itself in 2 Timothy 2 9, he says, I'm suffering bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. And so that's why even James said that, you know, count it all joy when you find yourself in these circumstances because wisdom's going to come and God's going to grant you an opportunity to shine the light. In other words, God has allowed providentially for something to happen and so use that and leverage it for the greater good, for your own experience who God is and be dependent on him, but then the opportunity to share with others. So pray for an open door is the first way. Uh, Rebecca and I lived in a subdivision in Mount Pleasant for close to about uh, 16 years. And uh, we got a letter from the Homeowners Association. That's always exciting, isn't it? <laughs> you know what it says. It says, you've been a, a, you've been a, a stellar model of a neighbor, You've won something. No, it's not that, is it? Your garbage can's on the wrong side of the mailbox, right? You parked a car in the street too long, right? Well, this letter said, it's time to paint your mailbox post. 
I thought, well, I've got a lot of priorities in my life, and that never get, ever got on the list, right? <laughs> but in our subdivision, everyone's mailbox post was looking kind of bad, so they said, let's get everyone to paint their mailbox post. So, uh, as about this same time, that as we had lived in that neighborhood for about 10 years, down the street, lived in a cul-de-sac, and down the street, there's about 13 homes. I began thinking, as I was driving past those neighbors every day to go to work and do ministry in my role, I don't know their names. Who are they? And the Lord began convicting Rebecca and I that, you know, we've, we know how to be neighborly, but we have not been doing neighboring. And here's what struck me in that moment is that I didn't pick my neighbors, God did. And the Holy Spirit was like saying, do you know who they are? How, do you, how can you pray for them if you don't know who they are? So we were personally convicted. Well, about that same time of that conviction from the Holy Spirit, we got this letter. Well, it just so happens Rebecca works for a painting company doing bookkeeping. So we know where to get the paint from. So on one Saturday, we decided we're going to do the walk of shame. <laughs> we're going to take a gallon of paint, and we're going to go door to door and say, hey, my name is Craig, my wife Rebecca. We lived in that house in the cul-de-sac for about nine years, and I don't know who you are. But I know that you got the letter we got, and could we paint your mailbox post? They said, great, because this is not on our priority list either. So on one Saturday, we walked through the whole street and painted everyone's mailbox post. But our goal was to get the names of the people and to personally meet them. So how can we know how to be a witness that's watchful unless we know someone's name and unless we're praying for them? You see, the great thing about that is an, an introvert can do this. Now, the extrovert has to be the one to knock on the door. I get that. <laughs> but if you get the name, you can start praying. Introvert, extrovert. So we got everyone's name. So then what we said, we said, okay, Holy Spirit, what's next? What, what do we do next? We're not going to wait for the homeowner association to tell us to do what's next. What's next? And we were prompted to say, well, why don't we invite everyone who we just met into our house during the holidays for a dessert and coffee? So we did. We thought, okay, the cul-de-sac group that we knew, they're going to come. But the rest of the street, we'll probably get one or two families. 13 out of 14 families were in our house. Blew us away. The one family that wasn't there is because they said we're out of town or else we'd be there with you. Here's what it taught me and Rebecca in doing ministry and doing life is that being a disciple is an everyday opportunity. It's an everyday experience. So we began to pray for these families. We began to get to know them personally. My mom lived with us for a long time and she actually passed away in our home. And outside of our church who loved us well, the first people in our door were our neighbors that we got to know by name. I'd like to say to you, man, a revival broke out. <laughs> you know, everyone in that street started coming to church every Sunday. It didn't happen that way. But here's what did happen, is that we got into relationships that led to conversations that talked about the hope. Where we put our hope in. And it began to teach Rebecca and I how to get on a trajectory of living everyday life as a kingdom disciple, making Jesus unignorable. So throughout that experience, there's ways that we can on-ramp, whether you get a letter from a homeowner association or whether you're not. There's simple ways. For example, as we pray for people, there's a 3-2-1 that we can begin to do to be a watchful witness. 
What about this year in 2024? What if there are three people that you were praying for by name, people that are close to you but are far from God? That that's, that's your main goal this year is we're going to pray for three people specifically every day or every other day or once a week, 52, let's say, times a year. Don't you believe that the, the kingdom needle and the work of the gospel will begin to move both in them and in you if we did that? Secondly is what if you took two of the three people you're praying for and intentionally said, I want to get to know a little bit more about them? Kind of like Rebecca and I did in our neighborhood. We said, what if I got to know more about who these people are down our street? And we began to do that and started building relationships that were much more than just, hey, see you later. We began to spend time with each other in our homes. So what if you began just to get to know them personally? You share your story, they share their story with you. But then what about in this year, one of the two that you're getting to know personally, that you took an intentional moment to say, can I share with you what God has done in my life and what he's doing in my life? I'll guarantee you if all of us in this room just began doing that this year, we would begin taking very intentional steps of being a watchful witness, first by praying, God, open a door and make me ready to step through it. Again, it's easy. We can on-ramp into that. It's something that God calls us, I believe, to be, is to be ready. And Paul demonstrated that in his life. Whether it's in prison or not in prison, he was looking for the opportunity. He was leaning forward into that. I believe, again, sometimes the fear is, yeah, but if I lean forward, what if I don't know what to say? Always the fear. I've been in ministry for 36 years. I have that fear. I've been trained in seminary. I still have that fear. What if I, don't, what if I say the wrong thing, right? This is where God excels. He's the one that has all the wisdom. You don't need to worry about that. Just be ready. Pray for an open door. The second thing is we need to be an open book. Paul says, be an open book, and he demonstrates that for us. Look what he says in verse 3. He says, to declare the mystery of Christ, that God would open a door to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Isn't it interesting that Paul uses two words, mystery and clear? That I might make something that's mysterious, unknown, unexplained, and yet to make it clear. That sounds like life, right? I can't understand these circumstances I'm in. But I know that God knows what's going on and what he wants to do through me and in me in this moment. I'm trusting in that. And I need him to make it clear for me. Well, I want to tell you that God, first of all and foremost, is not a God who is capricious and looking for a way, right, to trick us or somehow maneuver something in our life, a sideways energy, whatever it might be. He's intently wanting you to go forward and follow him and for him to be your Lord and your lead in your life. And so in everything we go through, we know that God is working something that may be mysterious to us in the moment, but we can make it clear. For Paul, he was saying the mystery is that the Gentiles have been invited into this big family called God's family, along with the Jews, God's chosen people, where he began to bring the gospel through. So the mystery for Paul was to make that clear and make it known. And so the way that he did that was that he lived as an open book. So here's a question for you and for me in light of that. Being an open book. How is the gospel informing your life? How is the gospel moving in your life in such a way 
that it's moving you from unbelief to belief. Remember that prayer that was said in Scripture? Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. I'm in this mystery, but I know that you can make it clear for me personally. Jeff Vanderstelt wrote a book called Gospel Fluency. He's a friend of mine, and I'm so grateful for the work that he's doing to make the gospel clear. He says this in his book, in Gospel Fluency, we're all unbelievers. I thought, what does he mean by that? I put my faith in Jesus back when I was 16 years old. He says, no, we're all still unbelievers. And what he meant by that was this, is that the gospel is the power of God to salvation for us to to be redeemed and to be accepted into God's family. That happens, and it's done. We're there. But the gospel is still the power of God at work in your life and in my life. It's not a static message. It's a living and active reality. So he says, in everyday life, you still face areas of unbelief in you as a believer. For example, an agnostic is someone who says, there is a God, but you can't know him personally or experience him personally. An atheist is someone who says, there is no God, and it's all up to you. Now, as we live out our life in everyday life, what areas do we begin to creep into at least a similar way of someone who says, okay, Lord, I know that you're capable to handle all things in my life, but this area, I'm not sure, honestly. I'm just not sure. I'm going to be honest. And I'm afraid. I'm afraid. You see, that's that moment of time where what God is doing is he's creating an open book for you to say, you can trust me in this. See, I think that God, through everyday life, there are unbelief indicators that happen in us. Those who follow Jesus, I call them unbelief indicators or everyday feelings. You see, feelings yield to either a functional Savior, which is me fixing it, or to a redeeming Savior, which is Jesus, to say, Lord, i got to give it to you. We make that choice every day. So when we live as an open book like Paul was living, he's saying, look, I'm in this situation. I'm in prison. It's a mystery in a lot of ways. I want to make it clear what God's doing in me and what he wants to do through me. So I think many times what happens is that we have the feeling of fear, and fear can either lead to one way or the other, In this moment, you go to the work tomorrow morning and you're afraid of what you've got to talk about with someone who you've not been wanting to meet with. You've got a neighbor next door that you're going, I need to talk to that neighbor, but I'm really afraid about how he or she is going to respond to this. A student has a a test the next day. I'm not even sure. Lord, I'm so afraid. I'm not sure I'm going to make it. I can pass this test. What fear does is it says, what's your choice? What are you going to believe in the moment? Well, if I go to my functional savior, me, what fear does is it leads me to anxiety. And anxiety leads me to a path of going, man, I'm not only alone, but I have no idea where God is because I'm way over here. Or fear would say, Lord, I'm afraid, and therefore I need wisdom and I need faith to trust you. So I'm going to look to you. I'm going to, in this moment, not be an agnostic, and I'm certainly not going to be an atheist. I'm going to be a believing believer And I need the gospel right now to speak into my life. What's the beginning of wisdom? The fear of God. So am I more afraid of what I'm going through? Or am I afraid of the fact that, Lord, I know that you and I together can handle this, but I don't know how. 
how it's going to work out, but I'm going to put my hope and trust in you, so I need your wisdom. And I'm going to walk by faith and trust that you've got it. Every day, you pick a feeling every day. What about shame? I'm ashamed. See, shame that's left to, left to me is going to become toxic. It, it's going to push me into the idea of contemptness. Or shame can lead me to the point of saying, Lord, I need to humble myself before you because I'm limited. I, I can't. I, 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 I'm just a limited human being. I'm trusting in your grace. You see, so the reality that I think we have to grab hold of is the gospel informing every area of our life. And in doing that, we become an open book. Lord, I want to be an open book. I want the gospel and even my very feelings that I'm going through every day. Take another topic, right? Through the very appointments that I have in this day. I want the gospel to inform me all the way through that. And that's what Paul, the way he lived his life. So I want you to know that being a witness, again, is not just a knowledge-based thing that you share something with someone else, and now either they know it, and if they know it, they've got to make a decision whether they're going to accept it or not. That is certainly part of sharing the gospel, but it's much more than that. It's in the backdrop of your life, of how I'm living it out. See, I had to face my neighbors every day. It wasn't like, oh, wow, I'm glad I shared the gospel on that platform. I'll go to the next one. What about the everyday people? What about the everyday people that are close to you but maybe far from God? How are they seeing in your life? Are you an open book to the point where the gospel is still speaking to you? It's not just something that happened way back when I was 16 and I made a transaction of what I believed and now I'm in the family of God. I'm good. But what is it doing today? How is it moving me from unbelief to belief in my life? Where is it living and active That's what Paul is saying to his readers. He's saying, pray for us for an open door, but don't forget, live out out loud, like live in the open. Let your life demonstrate what you really believe and let it be an evidence of what God's doing in you today. The gospel, the hope of the world, how is it shining through you? Now look what he says in verse five. He says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders making the best use of the time. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. See, Paul is now saying, I want you to steward everyday opportunities. In other words, this is not just an exercise that your church asks you to do, to go out this week, knock on every door, ask two questions, and share the gospel. That would be a very good thing. It wouldn't be be bad. It would be good to say, let me tell you who I am, what I believe, let me ask what you believe. It's not a bad thing. But in the normal rhythm of life, that doesn't happen often, does it? We don't necessarily go door to door to every person that we know. We, we, we live life. So as we're, as we're going and living life, the better way of doing that is to steward everyday opportunities. Paul says that, walk in wisdom. Now, he didn't say walk in knowledge. Walk in your expertise, Right? He said, walk in wisdom. Well, what is wisdom? Wisdom is the application of knowledge. So whatever you do know that's true about Jesus, about you and about your life and about the gospel and about the word of God, take what you do know and begin to apply it. Apply it towards someone else. Apply it in your life and apply it towards someone else. Now, what I love about Solomon in the Old Testament is he said, in all of your getting, certainly have knowledge that leads to wisdom, the application of that knowledge. But in all of your getting, get understanding. 
In other words, don't stop with an intellectual academic exercise. Begin to find ways that this becomes part of who you are and who I am. In other words, my habits now and my behaviors begin to mesh together where now I'm living out of a value and a conviction that this is just who I am. I live this way. I'm stewarding everyday opportunities. John Piper says it this way, wisdom is knowing what to do for the glory of God when the rule book runs out. I like that. When the rule book runs out or when the field guide goes away, wisdom says, keep walking. Isn't it amazing too how God meets us in those moments? Um, I love that. In fact, look what he says also in the last part of this verse. He says, make the best use of the time. The interesting word for time there is the word kairos, which means moment. Now, earlier he said, as you're praying steadfastly, at the same time, pray for us. That word time there is chronos, which means minute. So Paul's saying, in this very minute, pray for us that the gospel will go forward. But now he's saying, as you walk toward outsiders, make the best use of your kairos, your moment in time. And interesting enough, moment, kairos, is used 86 times, and the word time, chronos, is used about 56 times in Scripture. So it's overemphasized that the moment that we have is what's most important. And you know what's amazing about life and every day, right? We all have moments. We all have moments, right? Good and bad and ugly, we have moments. So what do we do in those moments? See, a Kairos moment is a child that's playing in a playground. That child's not thinking about, well, I've got 10 more minutes. I think I'm going to go swing, and then I'm going to go in the monkey bars, then I'll wrap around and come back to mom at the picnic table. Not thinking about that. They're in their moment. An artist that's painting is painting something of beauty that he or she have been thinking about for a while, and they're, they've got a schedule, but they're not thinking about schedule, thinking about the moment that they have to create something. And see, every day, the creator God, the artist, is weaving together thousands of details in your life and in my life, things that I have planned and things that I have not planned. And he masterfully is working in a Kairos moment. He's never bound to Kronos. In fact, the kingdom of God is like this. It breaks into the chronos, our timeline of history. It breaks in, and it does something amazing in that moment. In the fullness of time, Jesus was born of a virgin, born under the law to redeem all of us in that kairos moment of time, in our chronos experience. So what I love about a book by the name of, uh, by the, I think it's called, um, it's written by Steve, it's called Everyday Church by Tim Chester and Steve Timmons. They talk about four intersections, four intersections that happen. Now, let me illustrate the four intersections briefly because it will help us as we think about how do we steward everyday opportunities. If you take your Bible and you go from Genesis to Revelation, what you have is a story, one story that starts in a garden and it ends in a city. That's the abbreviated version. All right? But in between, there are four kairos moments that have happened. One is creation, when God created everything and says, this is good, this is my creation. There was another moment in time that happened, which was the fall, 
This is where sin entered the world and everything changed as it related to our relationship with the Creator. Then another moment in time came when Jesus entered in and he redeemed all things, both to himself and us who put their faith in him. There was a redeeming moment where Jesus came and walked on the earth and died and rose again for us. And then there'll be another Kairos moment that we're waiting on, which is the restoration of all things. So if you put the Bible together in four Kairos moments, it's creation, fall, redemption, and then restoration. Now, here's what's amazing about meeting someone who is an outsider, because Paul's saying, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Everyone has these four elements in their life. Everyone. If you meet someone for the first time, you may ask them the question, who are you? What's your name? What do you do for a living? Where are you from? Right? Now, if you have enough time, they may go back to this, well, I was born and raised in Miami, Florida. That's my story. That's where I was born. That's telling me to wrap it up. That's where I was born. If you hang around long enough, they might tell you a little bit more about not just who they are, but what happened in their life when things began to fall apart. You see, that's my, that's my problem. So my identity leads to my problem. And then they'll even, if they're willing to be open with you beyond a hello, this is me, they might even say, this is what I try to do to fix it. My parents got a divorce. My mom died with cancer. And here's what I've tried to do to fix that. Because they're looking for something that they want to have, which is a preferred future. I want to have my hope. I want to have a hope that I can believe in. And the issue is that everyone who doesn't know Jesus is working out their same Kairos story. They're from somewhere. Something broke in the world, in them, in their family. They're trying to fix it. And one day they hope it looks like that when it's all said and done. And what's amazing about the gospel is we know how the story ends. So what happens is if I'm an introvert, I can do one thing in that moment. I can do gospel listening. Hey, tell me a little bit more. Tell me, tell me about what was it like when this happened in your life? Well, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. See, if we do gospel listening, we can hear how someone is trying to say, I'm trying to be the best savior for myself that I possibly can be. That's what they're saying. Now, what's amazing for you and I is that you and I can say, let me tell you, I remember when I was there. But something happened. There was this intersection with Jesus. And Jesus showed me that he's a better Savior than I can ever be. So I'm going to steward this moment with you. I'm going to steward with myself because I want to believe it all over again. God's not only good, but he's still working and he can work in your life right now. Now, I didn't read scripture to that person. I didn't quote, a theological doctrinal statement to them. I just said, I know where you're at. I've been there. Those intersections are, are familiar with me too. Now, go further than that, right? Let me tell you about Jesus, and let me tell you what the Word of God says about him, right? So take what you do know, but enter that moment with an opportunity. Here's the last thing. Ultimately, what God wants from us is to make Jesus unignorable. Jesus said this to his followers, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You are a city that's set on a hill. What that means is that this is to be unignorable. Unignorable. So that's why Paul says, let your speech be seasoned with salt to know how to speak with grace. Not only that, but, but, but let it be an opportunity for you to not only speak with grace, but 
you have the ability to answer every person because you're living out of this everyday reality. You have something to say. So making Jesus unignorable is, is something that Jesus himself was in coming to this world. Even though the world rejected him, he came to his own, they didn't believe, but those that did receive him, what did he do? Gave them the power to become children of God. And not only that, but to become light, to become really through him a light to this world. You know, in everyday disciple, everyday spaces, over 122 appearances of Jesus in the marketplace, um, 132 of his total appearances, 122 were in the marketplace. 39 miracles performed by Jesus out of the 40 were all in the marketplace. 45 of Jesus' parables taught in the workplace context. My point is saying this. You and I spend more time outside of our church gathering than we do in our church gathering, where our time, priorities, relationships, energies, all of that is spent and expelled every week. You're going to go to work tomorrow, and you're going to put in a hard day's work, and then Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday comes, Saturday you rest, you come back to church. Every day we have these opportunities, and there are different domains within society where Jesus says, they're all mine, and I put you in them. Not only did I choose your neighbors, but I chose the job that you're in. I put you in that domain. In fact, there's a slide that shows this picture of five domains in a city, perhaps, that you can think about where you fit. Now, there's more than five. There's probably 15 or 20. You can put hospitality and different things up there. But if you fit in one of those domains, the gathered church gathers so that we can scatter into every domain. You see, we're not going to get the gospel saturation in our community unless we take the Monday through Friday church and live it out in everyday opportunities. That's what God wants. God's going, Jesus is going for gospel saturation. So ask your pastors, ask your church leaders, would you equip me when I go to the classroom tomorrow to teach students because I want that to be a light that can shine in front of them. I don't know how to do that in that context. I'm in the, I'm in the marketplace. I, I do a lead a business or I'm in a classroom. I'm sitting at a desk next to another student. What's a way that I can begin to do that? Well, I just want to share with you as we close this morning an example of what that looks like. They say that a picture paints a thousand words, and St. Francis of Assisi said, preach the gospel and at times use words. So I want to show you a picture of a story of three people living and working in the medical, education, and in hospitality as a picture of what would this look like for us. I pray that God uses it to encourage you. Like the melody line in music has harmony. It brings fullness to a song. I believe the church is like a song. It sings to the community of who Jesus is. What if the church flipped the melody line and that every missionary disciple being sent out Monday through Friday was the melody line? And what if on Sunday morning, the gathered church was the harmony that helped to envision and equip and encourage those that are out serving and making known the gospel of Jesus. Here in the classroom and in this community, I'm a missionary. I pray over my desk and my students by name and just ask the Holy Spirit to be here. He's really just started to show me that my mission field is in the walls of this classroom, but it extends to every person those students represent. 
And so my specific calling has been to go to their homes or go meet them in the community. They feel a part of my family, not just a part of my teaching job. I've had a lot of opportunities to pray over families, pray over students, and that's not something I could do in a conference here in my classroom. It's about that God is present in a church building just as much, if not more, sometimes on you know a porch or on a couch or at a kitchen table. He is present and He can work. So there is no A team and B team. We are all a part of God's plan and we have a very specific purpose to reach people for the kingdom. I think the work of ministry defined by Paul is not to define or confine the work of ministry to two hours on Sunday morning, but to see the leveraging of equipping people to live out their calling as a missionary disciple in everyday life, wherever they live, learn, work, or play, to see the kingdom of God advance and the fullness of Jesus be on display for all to see. From the get-go, the, the idea was to demonstrate the goodness of God by caring for those who are often forgotten. I think this is a reflection of Jesus. It's a reflection of what he did. And like, like there's, a, there's a measure of engaging in not just the physical sense, but the, the emotional and the spiritual the, those that are ostracized and forgotten in the world, how do you bring about some measure of community? How do you restore uh, beauty? I'm not an artist, but how do I restore beauty in the sense of someone's life? It's done unto the Lord, then it's a redemptive work. It's a work where we get to push back the curse and we get to be a part of new creation of what is God doing in the world and what is he pointing to what he's going to do one day. So whether you don't have to be a pastor, you don't have to be a physician, you can be a custodian, you can, you can be uh, a stay-at-home mom. Like, everything has value uh, if it's done unto the Lord and done in a way that reflects His glory and His goodness. What if every domain in Greater Charleston and beyond, in medicine, in education, in hospitality, had kingdom representation that was present and prevailing to saturate every life with the gospel? I've been in the hospitality industry for a couple decades in leadership roles, and it is a passion. You know, it's, it's what I believe my spiritual gift is, is to offer hospitality, and it's something that just innately comes out of me. Sunday Suppers was the idea of Barkley, one of my neighbors. It's not just where I have others from church that come here it's just the neighborhood and and so it's been really great to know others find out where they are in their spiritual journey if it comes up in conversation and uh and see where that goes you know see how the lord's going to use it 
Jesus is the ultimate servant. He came, he served us, he laid down his life for us. And so I see that in hospitality that, you know, we're offering ways to take care of guests or friends or neighbors or the underserved in a way that helps them. What if we as a church looked at our city and said, Lord, may your kingdom come. May your will be done here in my city as it is in heaven. I believe if that were true and we were all engaged in that song, the melody line from the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter one sums it up. It says that he put all things under his feet. Who? Jesus. Why? so that he can fill all things and the saturation of the gospel and the kingdom presence can be known to all people, every man, woman, and child. My name's Josh. I'm the associate pastor here at King's Cross Church. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Take a moment to subscribe and you'll get each week's message automatically. We invite you to join us as we grow in the gospel, connect in community, and live on mission. May the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.